Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Charles Ross, who's a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Mississippi. He's also the author of Mavericks, Money, and Men, The AFL, Black Players, and the Evolution of Modern Football, which was published in 2016. He's also author of the book Outside the Lines, African-Americans, and the Integration of the National Football League. The goal of our conversation today with Dr. Ross is to really dive into his research into athlete activism, to better understand his perspectives on what's taking place in the social justice arena, and how social activism and social advocacy amongst athletes is changing the face of professional sport. We hope you enjoy our conversation today. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. The PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series is extraordinarily fortunate to have Aura Health as a sponsor this year. Founded in 2013, Aura Health is the company behind the health tech wearable, the Aura Ring, which provides actionable insights on sleep and its impact on your overall health. It's used by top performers across a variety of industries, including the NBA, the WNBA, NASCAR, UFC, and more. And in fact, I've got one on my finger, which I had before Aura even thought about sponsoring pads. I can tell you one thing for sure. It's definitely helped me align my sleep, which was an absolute car wreck. The Aura Ring delivers personalized readiness and activity and sleep insights automatically to the Aura app, providing wearers with practical steps for long-term improvement. I can attest to that. The Aura Ring is not a medical device and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, monitor, or prevent medical conditions or illnesses. For more information, I'd urge you to check out AuraRing.com. And on behalf of PADS, we thank you for your sponsorship of the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Hi, everybody. This is Duncan Fletcher, the Executive Director of PADS, and I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. And we're happy to have uh, our guest here today is Dr. Charles Ross from the University of Mississippi. Dr. Ross, thanks a ton for joining the call today. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Well, as we've kind of already talked about, we're not going to have a super formal conversation where we're doing presentations. It's really just to have a conversation. And today we want to talk about social justice, and its role in professional and amateur sport. So before we dive into that, though, I'd really like to hear a little bit about your background and how, from an academic perspective, you got into exploring the issues of race and sport, and in particular, uh, the National Football League. Well, listen, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I'm a native of Columbus, Ohio. I grew up basically in the shadow of Ohio State Stadium. Some of my earliest experiences were selling Coca-Cola and Sprite uh, during Ohio State football games. Uh, Went to college, and then I came back to Columbus and did all my graduate work at Ohio State. Um, And when I was trying to figure out what dissertation topic I was going to select, my advisor and I were sitting around talking and going around several uh, potential topics and you know, he asked me the question, who was the first black professional football player? And I was well aware of Jackie Robinson, didn't know a lot about the NBA, but um, I said, wow, you know, I'm not sure. And uh, started digging and I found out it was a guy named Charles Follis who played uh, for a team called the Shelby Blues up in Ohio in 1904. First documented African-American to be compensated. He played two years. And then I realized that there was this story that no one had really kind of looked at that this history of black professional football players from Follis until every NFL team had at least one identifiable NFL player. 
and I meticulously went through. There were a lot of articles. There were some things that had been written in books, but no one had actually synthesized this whole story. And so that became my dissertation topic at Ohio State. Uh, and I meticulously went through from Follis up to the Washington Redskins were finally integrated in 1962. Um, defended my dissertation and um, a job came open of all places, <laughs> uh, University of Mississippi. Now, I didn't go to graduate school with the idea that after, you know, four or five years of, you know, exams and general exam and getting ready to write a dissertation that my goal was to end up in Mississippi. Uh, that that was not <laughs> my mindset. <laughs> And matter of fact, you know, when one of my friends told me about this job, I said, man, you must be out of your mind if you think I'm going. To, I'm not going to. I might go to Jackson State. I might even consider Mississippi State. But that's the last place I would go. Well, it happened to work out. They had a job. I interviewed. Uh, they had enough money to convince me to come to Oxford. It's been a great, actually, uh, experience. Uh, I came to Oxford. Um, I defended my dissertation after the first year. I went into a tenure track job. Uh, and then um, I, New York University Press was very interested in my book. My book uh, came out in 1999. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was my dissertation titled Outside the Lines, in which I basically looked at the experience of African-American pro football players from Follis up through the Redskins. Uh, shortly after that, I became the chair a director of African-American studies. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time uh, talking about sports, doing interviews with newspapers, ESPN, individuals like yourself, all kind of media people. And so it's worked out very well. Um, you know, uh, Oxford's a place where football is very important. It's not as successful as growing up at Ohio State, but um, if you're going to lead the Big Ten what other place to go to outside of the SEC, uh, maybe the number one conference in the country when it comes to football. So it's worked out. It's been a lot of dialogue that I've had. Um, the weather's been much better. Uh, race is a very polarizing uh, concept that comes up a lot more here than it ever would come up in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and so in this conference, we have a lot of things that are taking place. Uh, at our school, there's always something going on that we have some kind of racial dialogue. So um, I'm probably at the perfect uh, lo- location to be at in terms of what I do. That's really quite cool. And, and out of curiosity, um, and again, just for those uh, folks that don't know this, uh, Dr. Ross has published numerous books. How has your academic uh, trajectory changed? And what are you focused on now from a research perspective? Uh, just over the last few years, where's your, your primary research focus and what has it been? Well, um, I've, I've tried to stay in the area of sports, but invariably I've been pulled in a lot of different directions. I did publish a second book finally uh, called Mavericks, Money, and Men. It looks at black players in the American Football League, basically from 1960 to the NFL uh, merging with the AFL in 69-70, uh, uh, arguing that um, black players uh, in uh, from historically black schools played a major role 
and the success of uh, these uh, early AFL teams. In fact, every AFL team had at least one identifiable black player from a historically black school when they started and they formed in 1960. Um, and so, but I've been drawn into, I'm a member of um, a university studying a slavery research group uh, where we looked at, we are looking at um, the relationship of slavery and the role that it played uh, really in the success of the University of Mississippi. Um, University of Mississippi was established in 1848, uh, arguably by uh, planters who wanted a finishing school for their sons to go to. Uh, many of these individuals are from the Delta, are very, very, very wealthy uh, individuals. Uh, and um, in 1860, of course, uh, the Civil War breaks out. And many of these individuals, these uh, students, uh, volunteered to join uh, the Confederate Army as members of this regiment called the University Grays. Uh, and so the whole nostalgia of the Confederacy and slavery and everything that comes in terms of the legacy of that has had a strong tie to the identity of this institution. Uh, and so that confluence comes together uh, clearly in 1962 when James Meredith attempts to integrate the University of Mississippi and you have this very, very, very volatile kind of backlash. Well, it's invariable because of the identity of the school, the individuals and their connections in terms of their ancestors and all of the Confederate um, imagery and identity that is connected with the school very, very, very directly uh, that people were going to react in a way uh, that they wanted to do everything they could to keep um, this kind of bastion of, of kind of white purity from being integrated. Uh, and so we look at the role that uh, many individual slaves played in terms of daily lives, helping uh, the individuals that came to school, uh, roles that they played in terms of where they were located, jobs that they had. Um, we're trying to identify a number of individual slaves and where they uh, lived uh, in proximity in terms of our, in terms of the campus is much smaller than um, Roanoke, um, where uh, our scene uh, Faulkner, the great writer, uh, that was built by a plantation owner before Faulkner bought it. Um, there's indication that uh, slaves lived uh, right behind uh, the house of Roanoke. Uh, we've got some archaeologists that are kind of looking at that. So I've been tied into the slavery uh, aspect since I've gotten into the university. That's not my area of expertise. I'm 20th century African-American uh, sport history, uh, but invariably I've been involved in that. I've been involved in a number of um, um, kind of activities as it relates to uh, dealing with uh, how did the, does the university acknowledge uh, the integration of Meredith. I was here when we had to celebrate the 40th anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Meredith integrating. I actually uh, headed that committee. Uh, we had a lot of programs. So there's a lot of things that um, have happened uh, that I kind of get pulled in a lot of different directions uh, that aren't necessarily in my area of expertise in terms of just grounded research, but because I do African-American history, African-American studies, uh, it's an opportunity to uh, live my voice and expertise uh, to those things when they arrive. I think that's actually an interesting jumping off point. I wasn't going to hit yeah. this till later, but I mean, one of the interesting things about 
um, University of Mississippi is just the the nickname for the school, Ole Miss, yes. is not necessarily um, it, well. It's definitively not uh, a positive term. How has that um, been addressed in a sport context, and how do you think that uh, is? Are there lessons that can be learned across some of these other uh, sporting institutions that are dealing with that sort of same issue of of names that aren't necessarily built on the best legacies? And how is, you know, is that part of the conversation you've been involved in? And, and what do you think the implications are, you know, for both the institutions and for the athletes that are sort of playing under the, um, uh, under these, under these names and that are, 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 you know, have got a, a really negative connotation. <laughs> wow. Okay. You're going to ask me the big question. <laughs> question. I'm uh, sure that we're not going to solve that problem today, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I've been on campus through a number of chances, probably about five. I've probably been the most outspoken person uh, as it relates to um, certain traditions, icons, or images that are connected. And I've ar- always argued that we need to be racially pure as a public institution. We have a responsibility, not a private institution. African Americans pay a significant amount of taxes that go into the state of Mississippi's coffers that are distributed to its state institutions. The University of Mississippi is one of them. And so when you mix in then athletics, and so when you have the nickname Rebels, which is clearly identified with the Confederate Army, it's a nickname and connection directly to the Confederate Army. That is a nickname of the university and its sports teams. And so many people don't want to give that up because they feel like that's a tradition, and that's what people know, and it's the identity. Uh, but traditions can change, uh, and as we know, uh, they can be painful in terms of change, but in many cases, that change can be extremely, extremely positive. Um, we have moved away. We had Colonel Rebel as a mascot when I first got here in 1995. Many of the black students basically were very honest. Um, they looked at him as though he was simply a plantation master. Bushy mustache, big hat, coat with tails, pants, cane. Look just like a plantation master from any kind of uh, movie or something that you might see in a, in a book, film, whatever the case may be. Um, the university moved away from, from that, and there was a lot of back, back backlash from that. Uh, we're now something called the Land Sharks, um, and that is something where um, they've tried to use that as a way uh, the football team kind of came up with that. It was an African-American football player. Once he made a sack, he put his hand in over his head, and he kind of came up with the coin, the term uh, land shark. And that's something that they've tried to integrate, but they don't want to drop rebels. I mean, they want to try to keep rebels, but also use land shark as a mascot. It's very, very confusing. And, of course, the big one uh, Ole is Ole Miss. Uh, Ole Miss. Ole Miss. Um, is the nickname that came out of plantation culture uh, in which slaves referred to the plantation master's wife as Ole Miss or the plantation master's daughter as Ole Missy. So it is a product of this dehumanization, this dehumanizing, uh, this slavery um, experience in this system, which African-Americans had no power. In uh, all of their language, and they had to be very, very, very deferential. And so that is now 
the nickname of the institution is on the helmet. Uh, and I've articulated that, hey, now let me follow you. You want a predominantly African-American football team. You want some of your best players to come out on the field. You got Ole Miss in the middle of the field and you have Ole Miss on their helmets. You want them to represent the university. Many people connected with athletics have argued that they feel like, say, for example, if a game is on ESPN, Ole Miss in the middle of the field gives the school a certain kind of identity. It, 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 it flows in terms of the media. It also separates us because there are a lot of people that confuse us with Mississippi State. Um, and people have a hard time just simply saying Mississippi uh, in terms of referring to the school in that way. Um, Mississippi State doesn't have that kind of confusion. Um, the one thing I've articulated, though, is this. People that try to defend Ole Miss or Rebels uh, or even trying to we, – we've begun to finally move away from we don't play Dixie um, anymore the way they traditionally used to play Dixie. Uh, but this defense of these kinds of traditions and icons around the idea that we've been doing it so long is extremely problematic because – my response to that is, okay, well, I remember a time period when Archie Manning uh, led the, the University of Mississippi. He was the greatest thing the University of Mississippi ever produced. You got 18 miles an hour on the school uh, after his after his number, and those were some nostalgic days. It was, it was great to be connected with the University of Mississippi. However, the tradition of when Archie Manning played and you had all-white football teams – I don't see you now trying to embrace that. If you can move away from the tradition of having all white football teams, mm -hmm. maybe you can get away from this concept of Ole Miss Rebels because these things emerged when African-Americans had no say-so. You're now asking Deuce McAllister, A.J. Brown, uh, uh, all of these great players to come out of here and represent your institution, but you don't want to move out of basically the 19th century. Um, but you can move out of the 19th century when you have a thought process of, we know we can't play the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa this year with an all-white football team. We dare not bus from Oxford to Tuscaloosa with an all-white. So we understand that traditions can change because circumstances can change. Um, and so I'm hoping that that's something that's going to um, move forward in a way in which uh, it's a slow process. Um, something happened this uh, past year that I thought never would happen. And that is the university relocated its Confederate statue that has sat in the middle of campus since it was given to the university by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1906. I had to walk by that every time I had to go to the College of Liberal Arts, to the dean's office. Students, black students had to walk by that. Black faculty, black staff, all people had to walk by that. And this monument was planted at a time when African-Americans couldn't attend the university. Um, then when they could attend, it was almost like, well, hey, you know, you're here, but we're not changing anything. You know, this is how it's always been. And so in terms of sports in general, what I'm hoping is that um, this is going to continue to be a process that is going to cause us to look at things that evolved 
from the past and ask questions in terms of do they have negative connotations? If they mm-hmm. do, if we're at a different stage in our society, then we need to evaluate that. We can't keep calling this team out of Washington, D.C., the Washington Redskins. That's a, that's a problem, okay? We can't have all of these Confederate monuments on in these southern schools and in um, on, on courthouse squares where African-Americans have to move around, pay taxes, do business, go into the courthouse, walk past this monument, and basically, you know, just say, all right, well, it's always been there. We don't have any space, so there's nothing we can do. Um, but we are a part of this society. Uh, we've been president of the United States. We're vice president of the United States. We have people in the Senate, people in the House of Representatives. We have police officers. We have fire people. We have lawyers. We have doctors. So we've moved forward as a society. And to hold on to these things, um, I think, is, 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 is just something that people who have um, a mindset that, um, you know, because white people did this uh, in the late 19th century and it's always kind of been like this, people need to simply just get themselves together and just swallow it. No, that's not the case. Um, A reporter contacted me and was trying to get me uh, involved in... uh, an interview around Washington and Lee University. I guess there's some discussion about potentially changing the names of that institution or changing the names of other kinds of maybe smaller junior college. There's a Dixie Juco or something like that that's even taking a look at changing its name. And so um, these things can happen. Uh, Mississippi is one place that has always been very, very defiant. um, And it's always had this identity of, well, hey, we don't the hell with whatever everybody else is doing in America. <laughs> the hell with the other 49 states. This is Mississippi. And we're going to be the last to do certain kind of things, particularly when it comes to racial issues. And that's probably true. But the thing about it is um, there's also been um, a history in which African-Americans uh, have been involved, have been active, have had a voice and applied pressure. And I think the same thing is going to continue to kind of, to, to kind of happen. Hey, the idea that after George Floyd, that the state of Mississippi finally changed the state flag. There's a lot of people out here, I'm telling you, that would, would feel like I'm really shocked that that happened. And I'm one of those because I felt like, wow, um, there's still going to be a certain amount of defiance. There's still going to be a certain amount of individuals who are going to rally around. We've always had the flag. We had a vote. Um, and people voted. The people spoke. Uh, in 2000, they didn't want to change the flag. And in a certain sense, again, uh, to kind of close, your point is well taken. Because the NCAA uh, and other individuals in business began to put pressure on the legislature here and the governor. And they had to talk. And even though they were elected by a lot of individuals that felt like this flag should never be changed, it's always been a part since the Civil War, um, Mississippi capitulated. And so, you know, from my from my mindset, if you can get some certain kind of fundamental change in this state, you can get it anywhere in America. 
And, that, and that's really interesting. I mean, just to kind of continue to pull the thread a little bit on that, particularly as it relates to, you know, the black student athletes that are playing within your athletics program under that name Ole Miss and under the nickname the Rebels. I'm just curious, what do you think is particularly important for those athletes that are playing under that name that are, you know, of black or, or black or of color? What is it critically from your perspective that they need to understand about sort of what's taking place in, in the in the in the historical connotation of those of those names and and, and does it matter well yes it, it 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 matters i've had very um you know open uh straightforward conversations uh with a number of individuals that have played football here uh and for african american many not not all african american but for many african american particularly African-American football players, the sport that generates the most revenue. The idea is that, listen, my grandmama and my mama said, okay, I'm going to take this scholarship and I'm going to try to figure out a way to get to the National Football League. Don't go up there. You can't change them white folks, okay? Stay out of trouble. Stay low. Try to stay eligible. Get your degree, whatever the case may be. And you stay away from that. You try to get to the National Football League. Now, last year, for the first time since I've been here in 95, I was extremely proud because a number of football players decided to move out of this non-political paradigm that a lot of student-athletes, particularly African-American student-athletes, find themselves in because they don't want to jeopardize what they think is the next step in terms of opportunity. And so they typically stay away from very, very prickly issues. But there were a number of football players, particularly led by black football players, that marched down to the courthouse square to take on the issue of the Confederate statue, that they felt like it should be moved off the courthouse square. We had two Confederate statues in very, very prominent places. The first one was in the, was, uh, in the middle of our campus, and that one was being moved. But they also wanted the one that sits at the courthouse square to be moved. They also felt like, and they had, and they made the university do this. Once the Confederate statue was moved, it was moved to Confederate graveyard on our campus, but they could see it from the practice field. And they very clearly and very um, intellectually met with the administration. A tarp was put over it. So when they're practicing football, they don't have to see that, 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 that statue. So I give them a tremendous amount of credit, and I'm hoping that what they did this past year um, is going to uh, saturate freshmen and sophomores that were part of that process uh, and them to begin to recognize that you do have a voice. You do have the ability to do things and speak on political issues and issues that are contemporary issues. Now, the whole country was swept up because of George Floyd. And so they felt like they had to do something. Whether or not they're going to continue to push the envelope, I'm not sure. But I hope that they will. Um, I'm hoping that at some point, um, because they have the power, if they decide that they want to meet with the administration, they don't want Ole Miss on their helmets. They don't want Ole Miss in the middle of the field. It's going to be a very, very difficult kind of conversation and it's going to put the administration in a tough bind because the administration 
uh, is relying upon the alumni to fundraise, to give support, to buy boxes, to come to the games, to pay for the highest tickets, consume whatever it is. And so yet they understand that this group of individuals who are basically labor, unpaid, they're not being paid at the rate that they ought to be paid at in terms of the type of revenue that they're generating from their labor. Uh, they probably will weigh and figure out, try to come up with some compromise. Um, but at this point, that hasn't been taken on yet. But if it is, uh, it will it will resonate across the country uh, because many people, again, uh, feel like, you know, hey, those folks down there, they're not going to change. Uh, they're going to always be old Miss. There's no way they're going to drop that. Uh, and I'm not so sure uh, that um, it's that cut and dry. Matter of fact, I believe that that's going to happen at some point. Whether I live, live long enough to see it, I'm not sure. But uh, when you remove the Confederate flag from the state flag, and there's been some other incremental things that's happened, um, doing away with Dixie, no longer using Colonel Rebel, um, things can happen uh, if people continue to apply pressure. Uh, and I think on the other side of it is this. I would say to those people that cling to those um, images and traditions in a way in which they feel like this is the only identity we're going to have. Listen, every time the University of Mississippi, in my opinion, has done something that is right when it comes to race and trying to level the playing field from the past, James Meredith comes in. Does the university get worse? Absolutely not. You get professors, you get students, you get staff that are now a part of a whole diversified group, whether it's black, Asian, whatever the case is. You now get this university. Now it becomes a better place, okay, in terms of the resources it has. And so when you start talking about getting rid of, of Colonel Rebel, um, you're going to now make many people who didn't, would never think about sending their child to the university at least begin to consider that. And so the more individuals that you can get to come to your institution, to bring their skill set, to bring their expertise, to bring their research, to bring their athletic ability, the better your institution is going to be. And if you continue to just say, I just want to, we just want to look at kind of one group of people um, and we're more concerned about how they're going to respond uh, if we get rid of certain things, that is very, very short-sightedness. And I think that that's one of the criticisms I have of our administration. I understand that there's backlash. I understand you got to pay bills. I understand you got to raise money in terms of alumni. But what tends to happen is people become very critical. Many people may disassociate themselves. But the majority of people, if we drop rebels in Ole Miss, you think they finna now start driving down to Starkville and going to Mississippi State games. They sure ain't driving to Jackson and going to Jackson State games or all corn games. They coming right. They might be mad a year or two. They coming right back here. And what is that going to do maybe nationally in terms of certain recruits that you haven't maybe been able to get your hands on mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, you know, individual faculty members that you haven't been able to make, maybe recruit in certain areas in your campus. Um, I think it ties to your point, right? That the idea that you're, you're, you know, if you're a, 
if you're a fan of the institution, the idea of rolling down to Tuscaloosa with only white players, that's a non-starter, right? That ain't going to happen. Absolutely. That's a great point. So, so yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're exactly right. I just, I'm just, you know, I get so fired up about it because I think the school has a lot of potential and all of those things are relatively surface because when you look at our student enrollment, um, we're competitive. The only like South Carolina, maybe Mississippi State have more higher percentage of African-Americans than we do. We've got a lot of African-American faculty. Um, we've made some real, uh, um, real progress uh, really over the last, say, 50 years plus. Um, but there are a little, there's several things that are still eyesores that make it difficult for people like me that's, that's been here for 20 plus years for people to just have this kind of perception that you guys ain't changed. And I'd like to go around to a conference or I'd like to go back home to Columbus, Ohio, and people say, damn, man. Y'all got y'all not old miss no more. Y'all, I mean, wow, I, I can't believe that. That's the kind of conversation I'd like to have, as opposed to me trying to put a spin on uh progress and saying that those things are real, real still superficial. Hopefully. And Dr. Do. Ross, you talk about you talk about change and um you said something earlier about the young man who was raised by his mom or his grandmother, said, go to school, get your education, kind of don't defy the system. And yes. so that's that's a historical systemic problem. And obviously you are a historian and the individuals that attend this summit, um, athlete development specialists, they're the individuals that can be the agents of change because they're working with the young men and women um, in, in the professional and collegiate space and high school space, those athletes. So what do you say to those individuals who are working with the athletes to help them feel supported, to help them continue to have the voice, because we've seen around the country that some change has occurred. Um, the Washington, you know, football team and the conversations over the summer about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, those conversations. So conversations are happening, but to your point, the energy happens, people get excited, a movement happens, and then it starts to die down, either because there isn't a heightened event that happens, or there is that systemic fear that you mentioned. So I paint all that to say, as athlete development specialists, what can we do to continue to educate and advocate for our athletes? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I would say this, and this is my take on this, and people can disagree or whatever. Um, we have to be honest that this system that many student athletes are in, um, it has some shortcomings. It's, an, it's a system that is generating a tremendous amount of revenue. Uh, let's be honest about that. In fact, you know, when you start talking about these Power Five conferences, the revenue that they're generating is supporting many of the other sports that are taking place on campus. Let's be real about that. We need any evidence. Nick Saban has signed a contract for $8.34 million a year to coach football at the University of Alabama. They mean they got $8 million to pay Nick Saban to, to coach football. So they have money. And so there's money that's coming through this system. Now, we're at a point where the NCAA is now saying, well, with likenesses, it's so much money 
that it's almost they're at a point where they, okay we can't really just give these individuals money because that really compromises the whole student athlete context of this system that is in place. A lot of money being made, but we can't pay you because you're just students. Okay, fine. If if we were to even stay within the framework, let's not even get into paying student athletes. Because the NCAA is, when you start saying that, then it's kind of like, ah, conversation over. Okay, fine. Why don't we at least do a couple of things? Number one, let's require every university, particularly these major Power Five conferences, to give student-athletes as much time as they need, one year, four years, 10 years, 20 years, to come back and complete their degree. If you say you're a student athlete, we're not going to pay you because you're a student athlete. That's the word that they use to keep from compensating people is student. Then let's put some teeth into this word. Let's now say we want you to complete your degree. You go off. You don't make the NBA. You don't make the NFL. You fumble around. We're not going to go into that you flunked out your last semester when you left here, or you weren't the best student, and we're not sure if we want to give you money. No. We're going to support you. We're going to come up with resources. If the person is still struggling academically when they come back, we're going to still figure it out. If they leave and then they have to come back again, we're going to try to figure out a way to pay for this student to go to school and hopefully this person will graduate at some point. So if you're saying that you're a student and that you're saying that these people are getting the education and that we can't give you money because you're really no different than the average English major that's walking around campus with a book bag, 20,000 people ain't coming to that lecture. Uh, uh, I can't draw 50,000 people to my lecture in history. Okay, so let's be real about that. All right. So, but you're saying that you're a student. The other thing is we got to probably beef up resources in our institutions. I know there are a lot of staff people that are in place. You have tutoring. You have a number of things. I think that there needs to be not only academic um things that are discussed, things that are accomplished, things that are focused on in terms of making sure that the person gets through their exam, making sure the person writes their papers. But I think also you need to have a way in which you give resources. And I know that they do a little of this, okay, because I'm well aware of what's going on. But I think there needs to be an increase in terms of how do you balance a budget? How do you how do you deal with money? How do you how do you uh, deal with maybe when you get out of school getting a mortgage? How do you prepare yourself to try to go get a job? How do you uh, how do you deal with all these kind of things um, in a way in which you give a person certain kinds of pragmatic, meaningful skills? Because let's be honest. For the majority of people, 
that have an opportunity that are students that come to school that are playing uh, sports, this is their last stop. So really the schools need to have a certain amount of responsibility, not only over the academic and people staying eligible, but you ought to be more concerned about can we prepare this person to go into society, even if they don't go into pro sports, in a way in which they can kind of be meaningful. Are you? Can you have more than one or two GAs? Okay, you're sitting around here, you got a football team, you only got one or two GA positions, or how many other? Well, can you can you can you increase the number of graduate assistants that can people can come back and get themselves ready to go into coaching? Can you do some of that kind of stuff? So, um, well, that really me, speaks to me. Dr. Ross. That really speaks to this field that we're in, and to those that are going to be participating in this summit are those in athlete development, student athlete development, and and Duncan and I have seen we've been in this field a very long time the increase of those individuals at the professional and, and collegiate level. And as you mentioned, you know that there are those resources there. Um, and, and so do you feel that if there are additional resources, those individuals could better equip the young men and women to be able to navigate some of these challenges and be successful? I think so. I think, I think that you need to be able to almost have like a staff member that or maybe two that has a cohort of people when these people come in as freshmen you got five freshmen um and and you gotta help navigate so you're asking you're asking like one tutor two tutor how many how many tutors you got whatever tutors you got whatever staff members you got i i think the ratio needs to be smaller i think the ratio needs to be smaller in terms of student athlete to staff people. Okay. Now, is that necessarily going to stop everybody from falling through the cracks? Absolutely not. Uh, but I do think that that will help to increase um, the percentages of people that leave out of University of Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, University of California, whatever the case may be, uh, so that they have an opportunity to go out and network. How much? How many, okay, so here's the other thing that I would like to see. A lot of these people are alumni that have a real passion for sports. And that passion centers around taking pictures with these student athletes in the hotel before the game. They donate money. They want to sit on the bus with the team. Can we figure out a way? And I understand there's NCAA kind of protocols and rules, but many of these people are in business. Many of these people have a certain amount of education. Is there a way for these people to play a role a little bit more directly in these individuals' lives in which they can now learn certain pragmatic skills? It's easy to just write a check and then, you know, say, all right, hey, I get a chance to get tickets and I get a chance to do this and that. Um, but to me, I think there could be some learning that could take place uh, with these individuals. Uh, and so what I, and I've been on a lot of, in, 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 in these circles, where there's going to a game, going to practice. I know how these student athletes talk among themselves. Um, it's a difficult thing to put your arms around because what you have are, 
in many cases, a population of young men and women, but in particular young men, when you start talking about football, that come to these campuses, never really been on a college campus, coming from a community or family that nobody is familiar with college. And you throw them on there and you want them to juggle academics and stand out of trouble and all these things. I think you're going to have to throw more resources, more staff people. Okay. If you're really serious about it, because you open yourself up to, well, what you want is just to get these people through in a way that you don't get them on ESPN ticker and they stay eligible. And then after that, they're kind of somebody else's problem. And I don't think that's fair. I think colleges and universities, if you're not going to give. Now, the other thing is you could do it the opposite way. Give them $100,000. Okay. And so look, when they graduate, then your hands, hey, we gave you the money. What you do with the money is on you. Okay. And see, they don't want to do that now. They're not, no, 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 no. We're not going to give them no lump sum amount of money based upon we understand how much money that this school took in and really what these these athletes should, should be compensated. So if you're not going to do that, to me, I think you need to bombard them with staff people and resources to try and at least help them not only academically, but also pragmatically uh, and give them resources not only from staff people, but also maybe even from various alumni that could facilitate certain kind of opportunities for them. And lastly, they definitely need to be able to have an opportunity, in my opinion, to come back and be involved in coaching without a limitation on, to me, there's a very, that, that's a pretty high limitation when you only got like three or four or five graduate assistantships. How are you at the University of Alabama and you can't have but three or four uh, graduate assistants? That doesn't make no sense to me. I mean, how come you can't have 10 or 15? These kids that play, they know the game. Uh, in basketball, they can come back, have five or eight. And so, again, it's like it speaks to where you're willing to spend your resources. And to me, the NCAA, college football, college sports, there's a lot of contradictions. When you start talking about money, you spend a lot of money on coaches. You can spend a lot of money on stadiums. You can spend a lot of money in terms of figuring out where you're going to go down to a bowl game or, or what 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 uh, what tournament you're going to play in uh, in December in basketball. Uh, but then when you start talking about student-athlete actually putting them, spending the money on the people that's uh, facilitating the labor, it's like, uh, oh, we don't, we don't have the money. Too much. That's a problem. Well, there's there's no doubt about that. And, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the NIL plays out. And what I find fascinating about that is I think the amount of restriction, even though you're going to see this shift, is I, I think it's going to be unbelievably heavily regulated. And, and even though it may open it up a bit, my hunch is that there's going to be a lot of rules and regs around that, that it's going to make it complicated. But um, I really want to dive into... Complicated means that the compensation is going to be... Oh yeah, they're gonna put the boots. They're gonna put the boots to the kids. There's no doubt about that. They, they, they're yeah. Again, they're they're not gonna cede. 
that control and those dollars easily. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fight that's going to take place probably over decades would be my hunch, but that's at least it's a step in the right direction, even yes. if it's, even if it's a little bit on the marginal side, but that's one right. of the things I, I, I did really want to dive into, which I think is fascinating and kind of getting into the pro side, I think we, we've definitely hit the, the student athlete side. And I think what's really interesting is that you've done all of this uh, research on the NFL, uh, the AFL, which I guess was a competitive league. And I think, you know, if you look at the structure of the NFL today and then you look at the historical perspective, what I was hoping to have you talk to is, is how do you think that's impacted the, or sorry, the, how do you think the historical context of the of both leagues coming together and where it's at today? How has that impacted um, the perception of players of color that are in the league and how has that impacted them directly in terms of the structure itself, in terms of impacting the athletes? that are playing underneath that umbrella. And, and I'd love to kind of hear your, your two cents on that and what do you think the implications are, particularly through the current lens of social justice, going all the way back through like 2013 uh, with Trayvon Martin, all the way up to today with, you know, George Floyd and particularly over the last, you know, 18 months to, to two years. So that's a very long question, but hopefully uh, it makes sense. And we can kind of use that as a jumping off point to talk about the pro side of the game. Yeah, you guys been asking some big, big, long, broad questions, uh, which are good. Well, I'm trying to keep you on your toes here, Dr. Ross. I mean, keep me on my toes. Um, well, I would say the merger, number one. Uh, the most important aspect of it is that um, it basically facilitated the NFL to become the most popular sport in America. Uh, prior to that merger, there's an argument could be made that baseball was the number one sport in America. And that merger, uh, the vision of Pete Rozelle in terms of being uh, very aware that the AFL was using the principle of revenue sharing. And Rozelle looked across and he saw that. And he convinced his owners to buy into that. And once they did that, and then they decided to merge the NFL has never looked back. It has used television masterfully. And its revenues have just jumped by leaps and bounds. And it has done a great job also of controlling its relationship with the players' union. In the 70s, they had a strike, and in the 80s, but for the most part, the NFL has been more successful than Major League Baseball in dealing with its players' union. Major League Baseball has been has struggled because the baseball players have had a stronger union and arguably the strongest union of the three major sports in America, and football's had the weakest. But on the other side, for the game and for owners, it has just been tremendous. In terms of black players and social justice and, and kind of that where we are now, I think that, you know, you have to give a certain kind of credit to Colin Kaepernick because, you know, in many ways, he's kind of the Muhammad Ali of the NFL. I mean, you can draw some strong parallels um, 
you know, when Muhammad Ali changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, many people said, you know, what's wrong with this guy? You know, you're not, he ain't, he's not the most humble. You're not thankful. You're heavy. You got a chance to make all this money. What the heck's wrong with you? Why do you want to change the name of some Muslim? I'm not calling you that. I'm not even going to give you that respect. And uh, he said, you know, I want people to do this. And he then took on the federal government by saying, I'm not stepping forward because I believe what you're doing over in Vietnam is wrong. People just went crazy. And he paid the ultimate price. He paid a three-year exodus from being able to make money. And now you fast forward to Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, this guy played in the Super Bowl. Wait a minute. I mean, people, you know, have this perception that this guy couldn't play football, okay? They were close to winning the Super Bowl. Many people feel like this kind of outage that took place in terms of power helped Baltimore get themselves back on their feet. They ultimately ended up winning a very, very, very close game. If he wins that game, you know, not to say that that's going to maybe poke him from all of the criticism. It probably wasn't because he was a black quarterback. That's the other side of this. Let's be frank now. He was one of the few black quarterbacks that was now inserting this athletic ability into this position that historically had been reserved for individuals that had a certain amount of intellectual wherewithal that they, and in many cases they were described as leaders or they were very smart. They were heady. Okay. So, but all of the adjectives a lot of times didn't encompass that you can run and throw and you can make things happen because you are physically gifted. And he was, you know, breaking ground in a way where he was kind of a maverick just from that perspective. And you can almost hear the whispers. And uh, when he decided after Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin to take this position that what's going on in terms of police brutality is wrong and I'm going to take a knee. And I'm going to take a knee during the playing of the National Anthem this kind of hallowed activity that really brings everybody together supposedly before the game as Americans. We put all this stuff behind us, all this difference. When I go out here and I leave the stadium, the police bring pull me over. They may kill me, but I'm sitting next to somebody, a white guy, probably just going to ask for his license or whatever. Not going to be, but, you know, doing an ass anthem, we're all supposed to just kind of come together put our hand over our heart, and we are now, we reflect on this opportunity that we're in one of the, the greatest country in the world. So then he stepped on that toe. And then people felt like this audacity. And, 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 and the President of the United States really, I give him credit for, you know, saying some things that many people were thinking and saying, but didn't necessarily come out and say it, but how do you, you're now getting paid. You ain't supposed to have no opinion. You're, 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 you're a professional athlete. You're, 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 you're supposed to play for the San Francisco Giants 
and throw the football and lead them on the field. You're not supposed to get into this political stuff. Matter of fact, the president basically said, hey, you owners, you need to start acting like owners. Aren't you paying these guys? If if I was paying them, I would say, get that SOB off the field if you don't want to stand up for the national anthem. As though you, you, if you're labor, you're labor. We, we, we control you. You don't have an opinion even in the 21st century. So there were a lot of things that this young man had to deal with. Football had a hard time dealing with him. Some teams standing, some players standing, some players kneeling. It went through all of that. And then finally, of course, NFL capitulated and said, we're going to make everybody just do the right thing. And we don't want, we're getting too much backlash. And then George Floyd came along. And so then all of a sudden, just like we discovered with Ali, we brought Ali back in 1996 in full Parkinson shaking, leading us in the Olympics. Now we bring back, you know, well, you know, Colin Kaepernick actually had, he was on to something. There is still some racial inequalities in America that are systemic and they really uh, manifest themselves when we see police interacting with black men. Uh, maybe we need to talk about this and deal with this. And so, you know, he opened the door for now, and he gave a certain amount of coverage for black players to now kind of be more vocal, be more um, straightforward in how they felt. Uh, and they caused teams, more importantly, to say, okay, maybe there's some things we got to do. We, they did superficial things, putting people's names on the back of helmets. Um, there were conversations. Um, but uh, there's a great debt that Colin Kaepernick um, and a great sacrifice that he made. And hopefully uh, what's going to continue to happen is players are going to continue to be very, very, very outspoken and political when it comes to contemporary issues that they see that they can address. So, Dr. Ross, I, I did want to kind of hit on that. So you've talked about, obviously, Colin Kaepernick, and he kind of walked into a buzzsaw. And I think based on your research is is the the pain that he went through uh, tied to sort of the historical structure of the league uh, or the combination of the leagues. And the reason I ask that, and maybe some people don't know this, maybe the younger folks don't, because I think it's kind of fascinating. So I grew up in, in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, and when I was really young, I remember going to an Edmonton Eskimos game, uh, which they're now no, no longer the Eskimos, they're now called the Elks. Um, and Warren Moon was playing for, for the Eskimos. And everyone's like, how the hell did this guy end up playing up here? Because he was that good. Uh, and I remember, again, I don't remember exactly what was said. But I remember as a kid, the whole thing was, well, in the United States, black players aren't allowed to be quarterbacks. So, I mean, that is something I can remember as a kid kind of hearing uh, growing up at Edmonton, Alberta, but as far away from, you know, any kind of a football center that you could possibly imagine. So I'm wondering if you kind of fast forward to you know, a guy like Warren Moon, who then ended up, you know, going, had to, having to come to Canada, come back into the NFL. You look at what happened to Colin Kaepernick in sort of this highly, you know, skilled, you know, leadership position. What, I guess, is it, the, is it the historical structure of the league that sort of allows this to happen, even though it's predominantly uh, an African-American league? I'm just curious sort of what, what your thoughts are on that uh, in terms of sort of what's driving driving that and obviously now you're seeing the change like you said the capitulation's happening but i'm just curious is that a structural thing a historical thing what's led to that 
Yeah, it's structural and historical. Um, black players have really struggled at getting the opportunity to play play uh, quarterback on a full-time basis in the NFL. First one to play, uh, Marlon Briscoe in 1968. Then um, you have James Harris playing with Buffalo. So it's been it's been it's been some really 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 small steps uh, because that position has been really protected in a way in which that player is going to be the highest paid player on the team, looked upon as a leader, do all the off the field stuff. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the face of the franchise. He's the face of the franchise. And, um, you know, Kaepernick is, was helping to, you know, open up the doors. You got Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson. You've got a, a number of uh, Russell Wilson. You got a number of people, uh, several people just coming into the league now. Um, and so there was a time, you're exactly right, when, when, when uh, Warren Moon was playing this idea that Lamar Jackson could play quarterback, there's no way. I mean, he would have been a wide receiver or defensive back. There's no way that people would have given him this kind of opportunity because they just, uh, you know, there was still that institutional racism. Um, and to, to piggyback on your point, we're seeing that now still. Not on the field, but in opportunities to be head football coaches. So, when we start looking at teams and the coaches that they hire, decisions that they make, the qualifications of some of these coaches that are hired, and it's a head scratcher at times. We have this Rooney rule, but the Rooney rule now is basically being usurped in a way in which teams are basically bringing in an African-American coach with no real intention of hiring that person giving that person a cursory kind of interview, then going right back out and hiring the person that they want. Okay? So you got a guy like Eric Bieniemy, offensive coordinator, Kansas City Chiefs, one of the most prolific offenses in the history of the National Football League. If I can feel absolutely comfortable making this statement, if he was white, he would have had a job three years ago, easy, without any question. Definitely in his past offseason and definitely after they won the Super Bowl. There is no way a white coach that was the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs after they won the Super Bowl to not get a head coaching job. That would have been that would have been very, very in fact, that person would probably would have had four or five jobs tied up. Other people wouldn't have been able to get a job until he decided to take one of those jobs and then those other jobs would have opened up. People would have held on to jobs. So, um, you know, that's something that's very, very, very frustrating. And a number of people have been talking about that. Uh, Mike Tomlin, uh, coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, has been very, very adamant that something's got to happen. Something's got to change. But at this point, there's a comfort level. And um, these owners are not willing to kind of move outside of that comfort level, regardless of people's qualifications. They're bringing in people never coached in pro football. Many of these guys are coming straight from the college ranks. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't be a great pro, pro, pro coach if you come straight from college, but there are a number of black coaches that haven't gotten an opportunity, uh, and they, they pay some serious dues. And I'm, it's, 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 it's very frustrating. 
And, and Dr. Ross, you know, with all your, your work and, and in sport, all the history, what can we do um, or what can athletes do to change the narrative? Colin has led the way in the 21st century at the NFL. And I think we would all agree that over the last 16 months, individuals have been more vocal. But from, the, from what you've learned historically, because history continues to repeat itself, and as I'm hearing you talk, it, I, I see history repeating itself. What can we do so history doesn't continue to repeat itself and we start to change the narrative? What can the athletes of today do? Well, I think, you know, pro athletes is very difficult. I mean, they, they tend to feel comfortable talking about social justice issues because those aren't directly dealing with the team. And, you know, to ask a, a player to co- to comment on a coaching decision is kind of is kind of difficult and awkward. And, and oh, I mean social justice overall, not specifically the coaching. That that's going to be my next question, but just the social justice issues overall. Well, I'd like for us to continue to see, you know, right now, I would say uh, the model, the person that is uh, the most active, uh, the most vocal, um, that's doing the most in terms of off the field, in terms of taking their money and investing it back in the community, is LeBron James. Uh, He is phenomenal. And he has a mindset clearly that if I'm on a show and I say something in an informal setting that we have set up, I know it's going to upset some people. Some people may not buy my shoes, but there's some other things that's more important to me. I am committed to helping my community. I am now putting kids in college. I'm, I'm setting up schools. Uh, And I'm also speaking out on issues in a very, very, very direct way that rankles people. Uh, And there are a lot of people have an issue with LeBron James. And I think that uh, if you're a athlete, I would look at what he's doing. Uh, And I think there are a number of other people, Jalen Brown with the Boston Celtics, uh, a number of people. I think even Russell Wilson is pretty outspoken. Um, there are a number of people that um, have decided, and, with, and, and I am glad they have, that you may lose a certain amount of revenue uh, from endorsements or uh, products, uh, but you need to also do the right thing. And so um, I think that what these athletes need to continue to keep in mind, and I think LeBron is a perfect example, uh, is that, um, hey, there's more things, there are things more important in life than simply money. I'm going to make a lot of money, but I'm also going to live a very, very, very principled life. I've got children, um, and I also understand I've got children out there that look up to me, that buy my shoes, um, and there are a number of people uh, that don't maybe have the kind of power and leverage that I have. So because I'm in this place and I've earned it now, I've earned it. I came in this league. I didn't have a chip. I came straight out of high school and I've earned it. So I think athletes need to be cognizant of that. You've earned this. You've generated revenue. You've helped this team make a lot of money, a lot of success on the field. Um, You're in the WNBA. 
Uh, you think there's something needs to be said about Breonna Taylor? Then you need to say something about it. So would your your kind of advice and your takeaway that, to the athletes is to, to be vocal, to share your opinions? Um, you know, how can people move, to, move in a unified front where it's receptive and, and not see, seen as divisive? Well, I don't know if you can necessarily be concerned about that because the perception of divisiveness in many cases is by individuals who disagree with what you're saying. And, and so divisiveness is something that people have to define in their own terms, in their own whatever way in which they want to come up with an operational definition of what they feel is divisive. Ali was divisive. I mean, Ali was one of the most, now we look back at Ali, we like, I mean, what he was saying really was speaking to what was going on in the country. I mean, was he saying anything that was, but within the context of what was going on in that time period, many people felt like, you way out of place to speak out on these kind of things. And so I don't think it necessarily needs to be something that's um, in concert that all these athletes need to get together and say, hey, we are going to say this. I think that when the opportunity presents itself, if you're sitting there at the podium and you want to talk beyond simply what happened during the game and there's something that's taking place uh, in the world that you feel need, you want to address, that you think um, needs to be addressed in some meaningful way, then you need to take that opportunity to do that and not be too concerned about, uh, because in many cases, um, what athletes are doing is very kind of reactionary. Um, and reactionary from the perspective that something wrong has typically happened. It's not something that they're doing. It's something that's happened in society, racially. <laughs> or in terms of gender or, or sexism or, or, or something that is against people uh, that are transgendered or uh, people from different sexual orientations, whatever the case may be. Um, you're simply now, in many cases, uh, commenting on something that has been taking place in our society that's wrong. And for people to feel like that's divisive, and that's tough. They'll have to get over it. They'll be okay uh, because there are many people, um, sometimes a little light may shine in, even on some of those people that are dug in and feel like what you're doing uh, is divisive or wrong or what you're doing is outside of the parameter of being an athlete, that that's something that you really shouldn't do. And uh, that in itself is a very, very kind of problematic uh, mental state. And- and kind of a continuation of that, um, you know, especially as we're talking about athletes or people in the athlete development space, you know, we we have had some conversations with other people that work in the social justice space. And one of the questions that Duncan and I have asked is based on feedback, sometimes those individuals that are not an individual color, um, a person of color, whether they're a female or male say, well, what can I do? How can I be an ally as opposed to being silent and continuing the problem. So any thoughts um, in terms of to those individuals that are not individuals of color, what can they do to continue to move in a direction of progress? Listen, that's a great question. I'm going to point to another example. And I thought what he did and what he said was extremely powerful. And they didn't keep him on long. 
Greg Popovich had some of the most transparent, solid, intellectual comments after George Floyd of any white person from California to Vermont. He basically said that we got some racial problems in this country. We always have. We got to start dealing with them. And until white people start acknowledging those things, we're not going to make any kind of progress. I'm a white person, and I see this kind of stuff. Now, it was almost like, well, you had him on, and he was on for a day or so, and nobody really kept, I didn't see him on a whole lot of other shows. It was almost like, okay, he's kind of hippie-ish, real kind of leftist, kind of crazy, wears a beard. Uh, let's just dismiss him. You know, he's old crusty. He's always sullen. You know, he didn't like to talk to reporters. Now all of a sudden he's got something to say. Hey, just, just sweep him underneath the rug. And it really made me upset because when he said what he said, I was like, wow, we need some more white people in this country to be honest like him. What he was doing was being absolutely honest. And that was very, very, very powerful. And if we get more people to begin to speak out, and now we can begin to kind of come together because we can't move forward as a group of individuals from diverse backgrounds, diverse races. That's the beauty of our country. We got to be able to have conversations. And when we have conversations, it's difficult for many white people because invariably there is in their mind that there's going to be blame that's going to be placed. Oh, no. You're going to talk about slavery. You're going to talk about segregation. You're going to talk about all these things. Well, those things can't be discussed. But we also have to talk about what's going on in contemporary America. Those things are in play because they invariably facilitated how we got to where we are now. So we then can have conversations about how we can solve certain institutional barriers that we still have in our society. But we can't do that unless we are very honest. And um, for many people, uh, particularly white people in our country, the idea of white privilege um, is something that you really don't want to have a frank conversation because it benefits you. It benefits you in very direct and indirect ways. It benefits you in relationships. It benefits you in the way in which you move around society. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's an extremely, extremely uh, beneficial. And so um, to have conversations in which we're going to try and level the playing field in which we're not saying we want people to not acknowledge race. Don't, please, please don't say, I don't see race. That's impossible. I'm on here with three white people and I'm black. We, we, this is, this is clear. But what we got to get to is there's no difference in the way in which I'm treated or opportunities I have in society. You're white, you're beautiful. I'm black, I'm beautiful. But let's not, because of that, limit me from joining a country club or my kids can't go to a certain private school or it's 
going to make it difficult for me to cast a vote in Georgia. <laughs> okay, so we got to now try to, let's get away from these barriers. And those barriers have been very, very important in society because they have facilitated for many white people in our country a sense of identity that has kept almost total chaos from happening. Because if you actually had people in this country to begin to really connect in a way in which they had more in common educationally, class-wise, um, professionally, and they decided that race was going to be something that was going to be way in the background, people in power in this country would begin to become extremely concerned. I think that's... Uh... I think that's really interesting and some phenomenal points there. I think one of the things that you said that really resonated with me is this idea that, um, and this will be the last question here, Dr. Ross, because I know we're, we're, we're kind of running over time, but this has been phenomenal content. Is I think one of the things that I just kind of want to touch on is you talked about this idea that, you know, uh, you talked about Cassius Clay becoming Muhammad Ali, and you're talking about athletes who can, you know, get up in front of the media and, and, and actually say something and actually be able to contribute to the dialogue. But like you said, there's some risks associated with that. It's very easy. You can point to, to Colin Kaepernick, obviously. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is that if, you know, I am a, a professional athlete of color and I want to begin having these dialogues around social justice and I want to begin speaking out around that, what do I really need to know and what do I need to understand in order to be effective at communicating that message to this broader population? How does an athlete do that in the most effective way uh, to their greatest benefit and opportunity? That's a tough question. I think you need to try to make sure you're as factually grounded as possible when you try to answer questions or address certain things, because that's one of the things that people are going to poke at. Um, when you when you start uh, talking about things that make people uncomfortable or people that feel like as an athlete you shouldn't be touching uh, then they want to start challenging your intellect. They want to challenge challenging why are you doing this? Um, and I would also, again, go back to the LeBron James model. I think that you can do social justice by speaking out, talking to the media, doing interviews. But I think you can also return back to your community and empower young people. I mean, we're going to see the fruits of what LeBron James has done over the next 20 years. There are going to be a number of people that are going to come out of his schools and his scholarships. And they're going to begin to make marks in our society. And make mark my word, let's keep count of how many people say, hey, I would have never got to college if I didn't get this scholarship. I got a chance to go to school. Uh, and I probably would have been... I was in a very, very, very difficult community because of LeBron James. I had this opportunity. I ended up going to college and I'm doing X, Y, and Z, whatever the case may be. So um, you, you can do more. You can invest your money um, in a way in which is very meaningful to help young people. So it's, you know, speaking out, um, there's certain kind of repercussions that potentially can happen if you, you know, in a situation, maybe if you were, you know, somebody that's not secure, maybe uh, in their position. But, um, you know, it's probably even more of a challenge to not put your money 
in a gold chain or in a car or, uh, you know, some business decision somebody's bringing to you where you supposedly be able to buy, you know, 10 laundromats and do X, Y, and Z. It may be better for you to put your money back in your community in a way in which if you help your school or maybe you help your uh, community uh, in terms of scholarships or whatever the case may be, uh, sending kids to, to college. Uh, that in itself is kind of revolutionary. Uh, and that's a certain kind of social justice that I think uh, is, is really twofold. Uh, that's why LeBron James is here. Uh, because, you know, he's liquidating a lot of money. Um, a lot of money. Uh, and he's also speaking out uh, in the formal media. And then he is, with this production company, doing things informally. Uh, where he's in a barbershop, uh, that's a very risky activity because now you're sitting in this barbershop and basically what you're saying is, you know, there's a lot of black people in the, in America. They go to these barbershops like this and they talk like this. They talk about this stuff. I'm not sure if you folk are really aware of this, but let me give you a peek into what they kind of say. And so um, he's our kind of reminding America that all of this stuff that's going on, um, the average person talks about this. The average black person talks about it. Um, they may not have as much power as me. They may not have as much money as me, um, but they're well aware of it. Uh, and it's something that's on their, on the, on the radar. And the final point is he's letting people know now, I don't have any issues with Michael Jordan. I think Michael Jordan is one of the most phenomenal basketball players, arguably the greatest basketball player I've ever seen. Um, I think he's done some, some, some solid things in terms of helping his community. But he made a conscious effort during his career to try to remain kind of racially neutral. As he said, you know, Republicans buy Air Jordan's tooth. That's fine. That's how you want to, I don't have, I, I mean, it's, it's not something I would do, but I can I can respect it. LeBron James, however, is articulating to white America that I am a black man. I understand that. I have a certain amount of money, but I didn't have all this money. I was a black man before I had this money. And when they put me in the ground, I'm going to be a black man. And I understand that there are a number of other black people in this country that relate to me and have similar struggles. So that whole barbershop thing that he does and has done, it serves a lot of purposes. And I, I know people kind of dismiss it as though it's just a bunch of black athletes sitting up in there blowing steam and griping and whining. It's heavier than that. It's heavier than that because he doesn't have to do that. And he's doing it in a way in which he's letting people know that I have not forgotten where I've come from. I'm not going to let money facilitate my value system, what I'm going to speak out on, and what I'm going to try to do to go back and help people because it wasn't that long ago I was in those same circumstances. And so I'm very, very, very clear about it. Excellent. And I think that's a great point and some great insight. And I think, uh, obviously, we're coming up on here in almost an hour and a half, and I think we've We've touched on everything from, uh, you know, student athletes to pro uh, and, and, and a whole host of things in between. And I think this has been a phenomenal conversation. 
I'd like to thank Stephanie Thorburn for being on the call with us today. And I definitely want to thank uh, for all of his insight. Uh, and again, please do check out some of the books that uh, Dr. Ross has written. Again, many thank yous uh, for being here with our Athlete Development Summit participants. And uh, Dr. Ross, thank you very much for participating and greatly appreciate all of the, appreciate all the information Bill provided today. So thanks again for participating. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we greatly appreciate your support of PADS. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of our global partners for their ongoing support of all of our initiatives, including the Athlete Development Podcast Series. Again, be sure to be on the lookout for information regarding live Q&A sessions, and we urge you to continue to dive deep into all of the different podcasts that we're bringing to you over the coming weeks. Again, thanks for your interest and for your support of PADS.